This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was 13, I wrote, I had this bizarre experience where my wonderful eighth grade English teacher read us the last, I guess it was, it must be the last chapter. I think it's the last chapter of The Once and Future King. Uh, Mm. It was before Thanksgiving. I don't know why she decided to read this. It was something fun. And I just, it was like, electricity was running through my brain and I ran home. It was the last class of the day. I ran home and I wrote a time capsule for myself Mm -hmm. to open 25 years later and Mm -hmm. I closed it up and I didn't look at it. And then 25 years later I opened it. It was just a couple years ago now. And it said, I want to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a public books-affiliated podcast. Recall This Book is hosted today by the neuroscientist and omnivorous reader Gina Torrigiano and me, John Plotz, excitedly at work, as podcast listeners will know, on a history of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, Both of us are overjoyed today to torque our format a little bit. So normally we pick a topic and talk it through, but today we are delighted to be joined by a writer we both love, Madeline Miller. She's the author of The Song of Achilles, which won the Orange Prize for Fiction. That is the super prestigious Orange Prize for Fiction in 2011. And her most recent novel, Circe, 2018, is a sort of odyssey from below, or maybe you want to say odyssey from the side, a retelling of the story of one of the many women who have bit parts, crucial bit parts, but still bit parts, to play in Odysseus's rambling, manly road trip. And in fact, I say it's the story of one, but um, no spoilers here, um, more than one of the women in the Odyssey does actually appear viewed from a very different vantage point in Miller's amazing novel. So this is going to actually be an unusually long episode because we loved how the interview went, and we hope that you will too. It's going to be almost twice as long as our ordinary episodes. It covers a ton of ground, from Circe and the Me Too movement, to questions of canonicity, to Miller's own childhood immersion in Greek myth, to the question of what it means to wall off one's own childhood 
when becoming a parent. And for those who don't know the novel, she also reads two passages aloud, one right at the beginning of this interview. So without further ado, let's jump into it. This passage comes from towards the middle of the novel after Circe has already started turning men to pigs, which is what she is most famous for in the Odyssey. And the he in this passage is Odysseus. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it, I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them very deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. Their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall, when my lions were gone, and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sty, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men use to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs. They do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything. Scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies, but they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. So, so Madeline Miller, welcome to recall this book. It's great to have you. So can we start with where you, where you grew up? Um, so I was born in Boston, but when I was about a year old, my parents moved to New York City. So I grew up in New York City, um, in Manhattan, and close enough that, you know, we could go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was a huge part of my growing up. My mom would take me sort of at least once a month, um, and we would go and look at the Greek and Roman collections and the Egyptian collections as well. Those were my favorite. My poor mother, I think she always wanted to go look at the Impressionists, but I was very insistent. Um, so that was that was a piece of it. And then uh, we moved to Philadelphia for high school, and that was where I found my wonderful Latin teacher who taught me Homeric Greek. And then I went off to college at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and then stayed there for my master's as well. Wait, so I want to hear more about the Latin teacher who also taught you Greek. So was that was that on the side or was it? He saw that I was completely obsessed with these stories. And he basically, you know, took me aside and said, I can have you reading the Iliad in the original in about a year. And I, you know, said, sign me up. And so he did this small um, group meeting with me and a few other students. And we met on early morning Saturday days and before school. And so for a teenager, that felt like, you know, a really epic amount of effort. <laughs> but it was it was all worth it. It was wonderful. Those were some of my favorite classes. And we did indeed get to start reading the Iliad. So it was it was wonderful because I went into college with ancient Greek, you know, already ready to read the literature courses in Greek, which was really wonderful because it was always the literature that I loved most. That makes me wonder, you know, what besides um, the Iliad and the Odyssey really inspired this story about Circe? There's, you know, there's a few lines 
about it in the Odyssey. And you've spun this wonderful, rich, deep story with this incredible internal dialogue going on. Well, there are four major sources about Circe, um, and that's pretty much it. So one is Homer's Odyssey. Um, another is Ovid, and Ovid features her in the Metamorphoses. She's the goddess of transformations, and the Metamorphoses are this great work about transformations. Um, and that was the source of the love triangle between Scylla, Glaucus, and Circe. I reshape it a little bit. In the Ovid, it's much more... Um, the portrait of Circe is a much more kind of, I would say, flat figure. Ovid is really interested in her power and her magic and sort of her anger. Um, he's not really interested in her psychology in the same way. And so he makes her a very pathetic figure that she falls in love with Glaucus and she's always falling in love with the wrong guy. And then she gets angry and she lashes out. And so I wanted to give her much more of a psychological reason for doing what she does, for making this terrible mistake. Um, and then more importantly, I wanted to make her live with it. You know, that in Ovid, it's just sort of, it's over onto the next transformation. But, you know, I really wanted to hold her to that moment of, of what she's done. Um, so that piece was important. Uh, the meeting with her niece, Medea, the other great witch in ancient literature, uh, comes out of the Argonautica. Um, Jason and Medea really do show up on Circe's Island looking for absolution from their various crimes. And Medea does veil herself from Circe, hiding herself from Circe, as she does in my book. Um, but the meeting between them is totally imagined by me, all the dialogue and, and all of that. And then the, the fourth piece that I was using um, doesn't even really exist. It's lost to us. It's called, it's from an ancient epic like the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, but lost. We only have it in summary. It's called the Telegony. And it's the story of Telegonus, Circe's son with Odysseus, growing up on the island of Aiaia, going off to find his father, accidentally killing his father. These are huge spoilers, so my apologies, but they are 3,000-year-old stories. So coming and then bringing his mother, Penelope, and I'm uh, sorry, bringing his brother, Telemachus, and Penelope, uh, Odysseus's wife, back to the island of Aiaia. And that's just very bare bones. There's no meat on that. It's like, this happened, this happened, this happened. That's all we have. Um, so getting to animate that and imagine this meeting between Circe and Penelope and knowing that that was sort of waiting for me in the last quarter of the book was incredibly exciting. So those were the four myths that I had and everything else was me just kind of trying to figure out who, who this character was and, and who she would be. And there were some details within those texts that ended up being very important. Um, Homer describes her as being the dread goddess who speaks like a human. Uh, and he doesn't really explain that at all, what it means mm -hmm. to speak like a human. But that was, if you've read the novel, incredibly important mm -hmm. to me in imagining yeah. her character, that yeah. she is this character who already has a piece of her that doesn't quite fully belong to the right. to the world of gods. You know, she's, right. uh, she's standing with a foot in two worlds. Um, and then there was a, a very quick line in Ovid where he describes her as having a um, an ingenium, which is like a temperament that is more fitted for love. And he means romantic love, but I took it to mean something more like empathy, that she is able to experience empathy, which most gods who today would be sociopathic narcissists um, cannot experience. You know, there are a few exceptions for me. But um, so those those two very quick little moments were were important as well. 
Oh. Yeah, that's great. That really helps kind of see the arc of the story. Um, so I was thinking more about this question of like how you're, uh, you know, I guess the fi- the fidelity retelling versus creating question. Like, would you, do, when you think about where this book, I mean, both your books, but especially Cersei, I mean, where it fits, is it, I mean, do you, do you call it world making? Do you call it retelling? Do you call it rediscovery? How do you, how do you think about it? I think about it as literary adaptation. Adaptation. Okay. Yeah. And I, sometimes I call the genre I read in mythological realism, which is, mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Oh, I want to hear more about that because actually that was one of my questions. So, well, so first what I was going to say is that even though I said I'm very, I feel very free to make changes, the truth mm-hmm. is I really like to write closely to the text because I like mm-hmm. to be in conversation with the text and to be sort of responding to the text. And so, um, you know, I, even though I, I make these very deliberate changes, I, I feel like I want them to always be interacting with the text in some way. And so... For instance, even even just little moments um, like Circe is described in the Odyssey as having this beautifully braided hair. And it's this moment that's meant to make her seem very attractive and very powerful and very sexy. And, you know, therefore, the fact that she wants to sleep with Odysseus, you know, that increases his status as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to sort of take those moments and then transform them and sort of think, well, why would her hair be braided Maybe it's because she's constantly in the woods and tromping around and that's just practical. You know, that's where it'd be coming from, from her perspective. And so I I like interacting with the text that way and kind of taking little moments and trying to um, interrogate them, examine them. Why does this happen? You know, or what what brings them together? Um, The fact that in the Odyssey, Circe is the one who tells Odysseus how to get past the sirens. And she's the one who suggests that he tie himself to the mast and leave his ears free. That was an incredibly telling moment for me, um, because to me that implied that they have a strong relationship. She understands him. You know, mm-hmm. that is exactly the sort of person he is. Of course, he wants to hear what the siren's song is um, and go, then go home and tell everyone about it because he's the great storyteller. Do, do you think of the... Is the is the adaptation like a corrective also? I mean, there's you know, you're so aware of 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 power, of, you know, inequity and oppression, you know, mostly I mean, I'm thinking mostly like sort of the gender based stuff, but obviously like the relationship of humans and gods is also this sort of power relationship that you're aware of. And you see these previous stories that have, you know, I won't say cast it's not like they cast villains in a favorable light, but, you know, they show one side of people and then you take the story and you're you're rotating it. Do you think of that as a corrective or a rebuke or just is it augmentation? Do you know what I mean? Like in some way that does feel like it has to be corrective. I do feel like it's a corrective in the sense of it's a balancing, you know, that, that the text has been so bottom heavy and, and pulling really strongly in this one direction. So not a corrective in the sense that I want to supplant the original, not that I could, even if I did want to. Um, but, you know, I, I never want to supplant the original. I love these stories and I, I really cherish them. But to, to bring balance 
to to the perspective to say, okay, we've had you know three thousand years of the male heroic tradition. Can we just pull on that a little bit and right. and bring the female voices up? So I, this is just going to sound snarky, and I don't mean it to be snarky, but but why do you cherish them? I mean, given the things that you've revealed about like the bottom heaviness of them, or like what? Yeah, so. Like, like, why not just toss them out? I mean, you know, I'm obsessed with Ursula Le Guin. And one of the things I like, you know, one of the things I appreciate with Le Guin is that desire to say, well, maybe we could have been caught in like the wrong dream for 3000 years. You know, we've been telling this one dream, but actually, what if we told the dream? You know, what if I what if I proposed a different dream? Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, I. I think it is that I still find. I, I like how much of a record they are of of human nature, and I and I think those are the parts that always speak to me. Um, are the the very human parts? I mean, I love that Odysseus and Achilles are complete disasters as heroes. They make terrible mistakes. They're incredibly proud and angry, and they rain destruction down on the people around them, the people that they love, not just their enemies. And um, you know, Achilles's name is, is means likely, I mean, there are a couple of different etymologies for it, but likely his name comes from grief to the people. And Odysseus's name is related etymologically for the word for, you know, to be hated. Um, and so I don't, even though they are, you know, this very traditional male-centered perspective, I think that they're also ways to look at them that are built in that are saying, you know, Achilles is not who you would choose as an ideal hero necessarily, or Odysseus, you know, or they're not a hero in the way we talk about heroes today as moral exemplars. They're these larger than life figures who make terrible mistakes, like we all make mistakes. And in sort of seeing their mistakes, we connect with our own, you know, humanity and flawed nature. And so I love that part of it. I think that's what really speaks to me is, is the humanness of the story. Um, and I, I think I just don't want it to be, you know, and I, and I connect to, um, you know, to all the characters, male and female and, you know, characters who are different from me. And so, so I love that part, but I do, I mean, I, I guess I would say that I, I do want it to be a corrective in that I, I want it to be out there as another strong version of the story. Mm-hmm. I reread the Odyssey just a couple months ago, um, this new translation and was struck by Exactly that, you know, this um, the the humanity in these characters at the same time that there are aspects of their relationships with the gods that you absolutely can't really relate to. There's also this just human aspect of their vanity, their frailty, their their uncertainty, their stupidity, their longing for the connection with their families. It's um it's sort of this remarkable thing that speaks to you through, you know, these many, many thousands of years, right? But I also remember when I was a kid, the first time I read the Odyssey, and being so disappointed that you only got these little glimpses of these stories through Odysseus's, you know, boastful storytelling, right? And I always wanted to know more about these characters, and one of them was Circe, um, but but also um, other characters like Polyphemus. I, I wanted to know what was his story, right? So I, I wonder, you know, where do you see yourself, I mean... Could you imagine wanting to tell more of these stories? Um, Absolutely. And uh, Polyphemus in particular, you mentioned the Emily Wilson translation, which I love. And I think she is doing a lot of the same stuff, kind of trying to provide a corrective to to some of 
the traditions of interpretation as well as to the original. And so she titles the Polyphemus chapter, um, I think it's A Pirate in a Shepherd's Cave, which is a real reversal of the way we look at the dynamic of that, which I I love. Um, And I think I was looking at a similar thing with Odysseus, which is that today we love Odysseus is one of the most beloved heroes. And I think, you know, there's James Joyce and there's the Tennyson poem and we see him as this, you know, he's the smart one. Um, But the ancients thought he was a very difficult and problematic character. And usually he was the villain in most of the ancient pieces, the Odyssey accepted. Um, Sophocles made him the villain. And, you know, he he really he showed up as, as a very negative, lying, deceitful, corrupt character. Um, in a lot of the stories. And so that was another thing I wanted to kind of bring in. I wanted to bring in some of the darkness of his character, which I think Emily Wilson also brings out. You know, she doesn't soft pedal some of his more violent and, you know, frightening moments. Mm-hmm. Right. The two faces of the trickster character. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, hey, Madeline, do you, do you ever get a, a, a version of the kind of, um, oh, stuffy old... Western canon. Like, in other words, you're telling the stories that are like, I hear you, everything you're saying totally resonates with me. And as someone who grew up with, you know, Mary Renault, as well as reading, you know, the original stuff, I, I, I love the world of like adaptation and re-understanding, but do you get a version of the question that says, well, yeah, but you're just doing the, um, these are just the stories that we've been kind of spoon fed as part of our canon. So it, it's to stay within that world is to kind of buy into a you know a pre-existing yeah whatever priv- privileged Western patriarchal canon yeah I mean I I haven't gotten that very much and um, but I I understand if someone wanted to say that to me because I I think that that is a a totally valid perspective. You know, why aren't we bringing in new stories that have nothing to do with this history? Um, And I I think my answer is I want those stories too. Um, It's just, these are the ones that I feel impelled to tell because I feel like I can do something with them where I can bring out those silenced voices within that. But I very much want there to be people working outside of them as well. Can you imagine writing mythological realism of the present day? Like, could you imagine? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying Percy Jackson in which, you know, the gods go to summer camp. But I mean, can you? Yeah. Could you imagine contemporary mythological realism? Absolutely. Absolutely. And in some sense, I, I think that 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 is what. Um, but I, I also almost don't think you need to even do that. I mean, I think we've had narcissists in control of, you know, popping up and sort of making things all about them for millennia. And that that story, those stories about abuse of power and, you know, wanting to draw all attention to yourself and define the narrative. I mean, those are things the ancients understood. And so Mm -hmm. I don't even, I think you could absolutely translate it to modern times, but I think that it's all there in the original too. And so you don't Mm -hmm. necessarily have to, um, have to have to move it into the modern world to make the yeah. point. So, so like your books have been, they, I mean, especially Cersei has made like this immense impression on readers, right? Do you think, how do you, do you understand that? Like when you talk to your readers, when you meet them at readings or whatever, what do you, what do you think people are like, do you think it's that contemporary dimension that people are responding to? Like, do you think they're seeing present day in these stories or do you think they like, the distance that it creates, like the ability to go back to those old stories. 
I think it's both. I think I, I hear from I hear from from readers who are experiencing it both ways, which makes me really happy because I, um, I wanted it to both sort of interrogate the original, but also sort of say, but look how it's you know it's still us, it's still people struggling with the same things. So I I hope both, and and so far I I, I hear from both. I mean I think you know. I have always seen these stories and I think that is partially what was so gripping to me is I've always seen these stories as intensely modern because I think that they are about human emotions and and human life and even in very little ways. Like this is a really silly example, but there's a beautiful scene in the Iliad where Hector and Andromache, his wife, are talking and it's this very emotional scene about, you know, she doesn't want him to go fight and he has to fight and he has to fight to save her and um, and their little son is there and their little son, Astynax, sees Hector with his big war helmet on and starts crying because his father's wearing this big, scary war helmet and he doesn't recognize him. And then the other day, I was with my husband and our little daughter and he put on his baseball cap for the first time. She'd never seen it before and she just lost it. It was like he became a monster to her. And I was like, this is it. You know, this is that moment. This is this domestic moment. And that domestic moment in the Iliad has all these great, you know, we know that Astynax is going to be killed. We know that Andromache is going to be taken. So it has a much darker, but it is also, I think Homer also understands those very sort of sweet, simple family person interactions. And so I, I love that. And I always want to bring those moments out. Yeah. Have people asked you to push it even more? Like, have you been asked to write like editorials about, you know, the, you know, me to Cersei and the me too moment or anything like that? Like, have you been asked to draw the explicit connections or, <laughs> um, <laughs> and do you resist? <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm working on one of these right now. Um, the, I, I, I don't. I am I am a bad I am a bad editorial writer because I have to feel <laughs> completely passionate about what I'm saying. I can't just sort of you know and and because I'm used to working from an academic background, 1500 words feels grossly yeah. inadequate to me. Yeah. And I kind of can't like wrap it up with a bow in 1500 yeah. words. So yeah. I just I'm constantly like fighting my nature when I write those. <laughs> yeah. Though though you're okay, I really hope I'm getting the title right, but I read your amazing short story. It's like a Kindle signal. It's Galatea, isn't it? Is that right? Okay, yeah. So that's pretty, I mean, it's not 1500 words, but it's short and it's very point. It feels very pointed to me. <laughs> yes, it was. And that, that, um, but that's okay because that was, that was a, a fictional world and that was exactly the size yeah. of the world that I wanted. I never thought about making that a novel. That was, it sort of came to me as a short story and that was, yeah. that was just the size that I wanted for it. So in fiction, I feel like I can work large or small, but in nonfiction, I always want to work large. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, hey, would this be an okay time to ask you to read that uh, that Prometheus section? Because uh, I feel like Prometheus is an interesting <laughs> character to think with. I think it actually relates to Gina's point about people who are on a path towards mortality. I mean, that, that Prometheus is her first indication of there being this other world I don't know this other way to be a God maybe, or to be kind of a God. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is going back to sort of the, the parts of the story that to me feel very modern. You know, I think everyone's childhood is to some extent growing up in, in, you know, a cave underground or, you know, that what we see as our family, we take that for the whole world. And that at some right. point you leave the cave and you look back and you realize the ways that your family is different or strange or, you know, good or bad or whatever, the way that they stand out. And so I think 
Cersei is in this state where she has started to feel alienated from her family, but she doesn't really understand why, because she doesn't know what the other options are. She can't imagine a life outside of them. There's just this feeling of wrongness. And so Prometheus is very important because he, he is another character who is alienated and who can sort of speak to that. The blindfold had slipped from my uncle's face. His eyes were closed and his chin drooped on his chest. His back hung in gilded shreds. I had heard my uncle say that Zeus had given him the chance to beg on his knees for lesser punishment. He had refused. I was the only one left. The smell of ichor drenched the air, thick as honey. The rivulets of molten blood were still tracing down his legs. My pulse struck in my veins. Did he know I was there? I took a careful step towards him. His chest rose and fell with a soft, rasping sound. Lord Prometheus? My voice was thin in the echoing room. His head lifted to me. Open his eyes were handsome, large and dark and long-lashed. His cheeks were smooth and beardless, yet there was something about him that was as ancient as my grandfather. I could bring you nectar, I said. His gaze rested on mine. I would thank you for that, he said. His voice was resonant as aged wood. It was the first time I had heard it. He had not cried out once in all his torment. I turned. My breaths came fast as I walked through the corridors to the feasting hall, filled with laughing gods. Across the room, the fury was toasting with an immense goblet embossed with a gorgon's leering face. She had not forbidden anyone to speak to Prometheus, but that was nothing. Her business was offense. I imagined her internal, her infernal voice howling out my name. I imagined manacles rattling on my wrist and the whip striking from the air. But my mind could not imagine further than that. I had never felt a lash. I did not know the color of my blood. I really like the point you're making there about the circle, like the circumscribed world giving way to a larger world. Um, it just seems such a useful, like it's just a very illuminating way to think about what you're doing in terms of opening up the different spaces here. And the only thing I would love to hear you say more about that idea of the self-contained world in the context of the fact that Cersei's Island is also like deliberately walled off as such a world like that. In other words, so she goes out into the big world. She's able to see beyond her, you know, like the, the, the godly house. I mean, I actually was thinking a little bit about like the, the allegories of Buddha there, you know, that you eventually have to, you know, you, you grow up as a golden princess or prince, and then eventually you have to leave and go out into the nasty world and realize that the world isn't like that goldenness, but then she walls herself in again. Yeah. And there's an interior transformation that she undergoes by virtue of the woods and the, the plants and the, um, so, I mean, those walls are actually kind of essential for her to to find her interior compass in some way. Yes. Yeah. And in this, I, w- I was actually thinking of Virginia Woolf and A Room of One's Own. And in order to escape from this all-consuming society, you have there has to be some kind of retreat. Um, and, you know, this I wanted to contrast this with her sister. You know, her sister decides to live in the world. If you want to live in the world as a woman and have power, then you have to, you know, 
make some choices that Pacify makes. Um, and she makes some really vicious choices to be just as scary as, you know, all the scary characters out there. Whereas Cersei, who doesn't want that, instead she sort of attempts to retreat. You know, can I, can I live an ethical life? Oh, maybe only in retreat. Is that the only right. way? Um, right. And so absolutely, that was something I, I, I felt like that retreat was actually really vital because it's the only place that she can turn off all the obligations that she is asked to fulfill when she's part right. of the world. Right. Though then, of course, it becomes the site of all these other obligations. I mean, like <laughs> a jail, I guess. And then also it's the place where she ra- raises her own child. And for him, it becomes like the same thing, an enclosed world, right? So, Yes. And, and, you know, I think that there is, um, you know, this is a very psychological thing that really doesn't have to do with the myths at all. But I think one of the things I've always been interested in is how parents, so often we hear the story that parents who have been abused as children, either emotionally or physically, they then grow up and become abusers as well. And that is often a very hard road, I think, for parents who have come from terrible or difficult families when they raise their own children. If they want to take a better path, they basically have to wall off their past from their child. You know, that that their past is something that they don't want to leak onto their child at all. And so they sort of have to become this pastless person. And, and it's, a, mm-hmm. I think it's a very lonely mm-hmm. way to, to raise a child, but also very moral because, you know, she's trying to do the right thing and, and not, not pass it on. Um, and so that really has nothing to do with the myth at all, but I, I have found that, I find that such a moving thing that so, such a, a sacrifice that I think parents make who have, who have come from these difficult backgrounds, but who are trying to raise their child in a different, in a different world. Cool. Hey, did you have a, a vocation moment, like however defined, like an on the road to Damascus moment, which about like, this is what I want to do? Like, yes, I did. Um, at least for, for directing and for teaching, I did. Uh-huh. For writing, I was much more kind of backing into it only because I was not because I didn't want to write. Um, since I was a child, because I did, but I was afraid to claim it. Speaking of, of Greek mythology, I had a lot of hubris fear when I was younger and, you know, I felt like I couldn't say it. Otherwise the, you know, lightning bolts would come down. Um, but I, when I was 13, I wrote, I had this bizarre experience where my wonderful eighth grade English teacher read us the last, I guess it was, it must be the last chapter. I think it's the last chapter of the once and future King. Uh, it was like the day before Thanksgiving. I don't know why she decided to read this. It was something fun. And I just, it was like electricity was running through my brain and I ran home. It was the last class of the day. I ran home and I wrote a time capsule for myself to open 25 years later and I closed it up and I didn't look at it. And then 25 years later I opened it. It was just a couple of years ago now. And it said, I want to be a writer. I'm going to be a writer. And, but I had like hidden that from myself. <laughs> I had put it. Wow. And so you didn't remember what it said. Like when you opened it up, you didn't remember. And I was shocked to say that, to, to see myself claiming that at 13. 
And I, That's amazing. That's pretty funny. Wow. What if it had said, I want to be a fireman? Would you? <laughs> Go start taking classes in firefighting. <laughs> well, um, hey, so Madeline, one thing we do on this, on the podcast is we have a little thing at the end we call recallable books, where we basically ask people to talk about, you know, it would be related to the topic of the podcast if you, if you want, but basically to talk about some kind of unjustly neglected book that we, uh, we think everyone ought to read, but nobody does read. Can I put you on the spot? Can you think of one? Let me think. Let me think. And, and it, it cannot be the Thea, Theagonia. Wait, it was it? Telegony, thank you. Uh, a neglected book. All right, let me think. What's yeah. a neglected book that no one reads? Um, well, hmm. I think the neglected makes it tricky. Um, I just read by Maurice Condé this summer, I Tichiba, Black Witch of Salem, which I love. Oh, wow. I don't know that. It's yeah. terrific. It's really interesting and it's angry and it's such a powerful and potent character that she creates. Um, and she's definitely pushing back against Arthur Miller, but also, you know, using, mm. um, doing lots of really interesting stuff with it. And um, she I did a version of Wuthering Heights too. Oh, she did? Yeah, did she did Windward that? Heights, I think it's called. Oh, yeah. So funny. Oh, that's yeah. really interesting. Now I have to read yeah. that. <laughs> but I yeah. had never heard of, of, the I teach you about Black Witch of Salem, and I feel like it should always be paired with the Crucible, yeah. basically. Um, yeah. So anyway, I I loved that, and and you know it's maybe thirty years old now, but it's terrific. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think he's really neglected, but James Baldwin is one of my favorite writers of all time, and I always would like to see more people reading James yeah. Baldwin. Yeah. He's definitely unneglected right now. He's having, which is good, which is really good. Yeah, yeah. He is, so Virgil and Horace reclaimed um, the word wates or vates, which means poet prophet. They sort of used it to mean poet prophet. I feel like he's America's yeah. poet prophet. He's our, he's our vates. Um, I, let me think. Um, uh, you know what? Very few people read Two Noble Kinsmen. And I really like Two Noble Kinsmen because it has this queer story in it. I feel like there's all, it's very unusual. There's lots of, you know, sort of same sex men, you know, male, homosocial, homoerotic relationships in, um, in Shakespeare. But Two Noble Kinsmen has one between two women that's really interesting. Is there anything you'd want to ask, say, like a neuroscientist who is a fan of your work? <laughs> Um, I would want to ask about, uh, all the recent studies about empathy and how they're, they're sort of the stuff about how the more power and privilege you have, the more your empathy starts to drop, which was actually completely in my mind as I was working on Cersei. Um, and it's possible to fight against it, but you have to consciously fight against it. Um, and so I, w I would ask about about that, because that is certainly, you know, I feel like that's the story of King Lear. You know, no one has told King Lear no for 80 years. And then but he, unlike the gods, is able to, you know, go on a little bit of an arc and, and change and sort of come to a deeper understanding of himself and and empathy and all that. Whereas, you know, the gods, the gods do not. So I, I would want to know more about that and sort of the the idea of empathy studies and, and how to work with increasing or, you know, what are the things that that help to bring it out more because to me, empathy is really the project of storytelling. And, you know, it is about, um, 
being able to imagine yourself in, into someone else's life. And I, I think it is also, you know, it, it's the way that I feel like literature and storytelling can save the world because it can, it can sneak past people's defenses in ways that if you just tell them you can't, you know, you won't get any response that I sort of, you know, that's my secret uh, desire is to sneak past people's defenses, you know, and, and to have them consider things that they in their regular life, if they read it in a nonfiction form, they wouldn't think about or they wouldn't identify with. Yeah, I think that's a really nice idea. In general, I think uh, scientists are a little resistant to the notion that you have to tell a story to reach people. But it's actually is very clear that even if you want to do a good job of explaining your own particular data, you can only do it through a story. The story has to reflect something real about the data, but it's still a story. I think there's a good podcast in there, actually, like the logic of the parable or something, mm -hmm. like the relationship between particularity and mm -hmm. universality or generalizability. That's a good topic. But come on, Gina, you're supposed to give us the hard science behind well, it. Well, I, I have to say that there isn't any. Um, <laughs> so that's the problem, right? Neuros neuroscience can't help with this. But I do think that empathy is something that takes practice, that stories can lead, you're right, stories about other people and other ways of thinking about things can lead you to them. And the converse of that is that the more distance you can put between yourself and other people, the easier it is to think of them as other and as something that you can exploit. Yeah. So... You know what I was thinking about? You mentioned uh, Lear, but I was thinking about that Flannery O'Connor story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Do you remember that the moral, the, the criminal at the end gives the moral and he says she would have been a good woman if there'd been someone there to shoot her every day of her life? <laughs> like, like once she gets shot in the stomach, suddenly she becomes incredibly nice. <laughs> um. Yeah, sad fact is that I, I do think, not always, I don't think, I think sometimes suffering is just suffering and it is it has no positive purpose and is only negative. But I think that it can also, you know, remind us of our shared humanity and, and allow you to have more empathy for other people. I think Lincoln and the Bardo is all about that. I don't know if you've read that, that George Sanders yeah. book. Yeah. And then circling back to Prometheus, of course, that's his choice. His yeah. perpetual suffering as a way of, you know, resisting. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, the that story, I didn't find a way to work this in because it just didn't belong. But the way one version of the story of the Prometheus story, the way it wraps up is that um, Zeus agrees to release him after, you know, centuries of torment if someone else will give up their immortality, a sort of payment. And Chiron, the centaur, who is the great teacher, gives up his immortality so that Prometheus can go free. And that just feels... That feels completely right. It feels like, yes, Chiron would, you know, that sort of the Chiron as I imagine him, that that inspired my portrait of him in Song of Achilles. In Song of Achilles, yeah. yeah. Wait, where is that story told? Sorry. That's a good question. Where is that? Um, I've never heard that. I've always wondered if anyone, you know, if Prometheus ever escaped from his rock. See if I know I can't remember where that comes from. Um, it sounds familiar to me. Like, I know I read that in Edith Hamilton or something, but I don't know where. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Madeline, thank you so much, especially for blocking out so much time and, and listening to all my annoying emails about microphones and things. I think the sound was great. So, so much my yeah. pleasure. Thank you for such great questions. Yeah, yeah this was super fun. It was yeah. really great to get a chance to yeah. talk to you about this book. 
Recall This Book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It's affiliated with Public Books and is recorded and edited at Brandeis University by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing is by Anil Tripathi and production assistance from Matthew Schratz. Mark DeLello advises on technological matters, and we appreciate the support of University Librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticism, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us, contact us via Twitter, or reach us directly via our Facebook page or our website, recallthisbook.org, where you'll also find links to the text discussed today and suggestions for further reading and listening. So in recent episodes, uh, Gina Torrigiano, who you just heard today, discussed opiate addiction with Elizabeth Ferry and me, and the sculptor Tori Fair made the case for artistic minimalism. And that one features a micro-performance of one of Beckett's greatest and certainly shortest plays. And in upcoming episodes, we're going to hear from Martin Puchner about the history of writing. And also, in a first, we're going to have a collaboration with Harvard's Mahindra Humanities Center, an episode that is recorded live in front of not a studio, but a lecture hall audience. And in that episode, you'll hear me arguing about distraction with Bard Professor Marina von Zoylen, who has a wonderful book on the topic. I perform a Monty Python monologue about word association football, and Marina dishes about what it means to get a brain scan. So all that and more from Recall This Book. Thanks for listening.